Unshackled of Pacific Garden Mission presents History's Greatest Sermons, where we share the personal history of godly men who brought forth the truth of the gospel in powerful sermons to a world long ago. Can you imagine sitting at the feet of one of history's greatest preachers and hearing their greatest sermons? Picture yourself on an old wooden pew in Charles Spurgeon's London Church or perched in a tree in the fields of a George Whitfield revival, or striding down the sawdust trail at a Billy Sunday prayer meeting. Whatever the scene, hearing these great sermons from the past will be as fitting to today's Christians as the day they were first preached. And now, here are your hosts, Tim Lundeen and Kelly Robbins. Welcome back to History's Greatest Sermons. Kelly, it's good to see you again. And Tim? This week, we're gonna hear from Martin Luther. And you just said something interesting. It's a name we've all heard. Uh, it's, again, one of those. And I bet there's things we think we know about him. Oh, yeah. You know, like, oh, Martin Luther, he was the guy oh, yeah. who did such and such. The it's great like, reformer. Da-da, yeah, yeah. Da-da-da. I was researching and I thought, you know, he did a lot. But we've done recent sermons of yes. guys that seemingly did way more yes. than him as far as active in the community or starting orphanages or building churches and stuff. His activity was very different. Very, extremely different because he came from different times. Different times, but some of the issues were still the same. Oh, yes. Um, But let's go back. Okay. Martin Luther. Mm -hmm. uh, He was born in 1483, which is quite a while ago. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to put my mind into that time frame because we think think too much about it. But anyway. Yeah. uh, He was at the heartbeat of the Reformation, but there was a reason why. He was very, I would say, disillusioned, disappointed, frustrated with at least what I read, that what he was doing, he, he kept thinking, there's no way this could atone for, right. for my sin. Right. Is he, this really true? Is this re- does this really work? That came, it, it came from a deep sense of his own inadequacy, which we struggle with, that yeah. feeling. We don't like it. But his experience led him to say, I've done it. I've checked the boxes, just like Paul did. And Paul checked all the boxes and he said, it's not enough. And Luther did this more than anybody around him and said, it's not enough. The church is not enough. And the church is using this and it's not getting us where we need to go. Yeah. Allegedly, there's a story of him thinking about um, indulgences and paying your way out of uh, purgatory. Yes. And that he supposedly had asked, well, if this if you can actually pardon people in this way, why don't you just pardon all of them? Kind of like holding it out as this great mirror of like. Like I said, does this, does this work? Does this really work as all my efforts? If it really worked, why do I feel like it's so insufficient? The fact that he would go to confessional for hours and hours and hours at a time and then leave only to turn around and go right back in. Cause well, there's that one thing I didn't ask for forgiveness for, or I wasn't penitent enough. And he just, that, that weight was so heavy on him. Yes. And what's great for us anyway, is that it drove him to the scripture. Yes. And he's going to get into that in this sermon that we're going to listen to. It's called Law, Faith, and Love to Your Neighbor. And it'll be interesting to see how those three play together. I'm tuned in. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. 
Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father has sent me, even so send I you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord, but he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again his disciples were within, and Thomas was with them, then came Jesus. The doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side. And being not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God, Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. John 20, 19-31 Of true godliness the law and faith. In today's gospel, the life of a Christian in the two parts it consists of are presented to us. First, the Lord shows Thomas his hands and feet. Second, he is sent as Christ is sent. This is nothing other than faith and love, the two thoughts that are preached to us in all the gospel texts. Formerly, you have heard, and alas, it is preached throughout the world, that if anyone desires to become righteous, he must begin with human laws. This was done under the reign of Pope Leo X, and nearly all the very best preachers preached nothing else except how one is to be outwardly pious and about good works that glitter before the world. But this is still far from the true righteousness that avails before God. There is another way to begin to become righteous that commences by teaching us the laws of God from which we learn to know ourselves, what we are, and how impossible it is for us to fulfill the divine commandments. The law speaks thus, You shall have one God Worship him alone, trust in him alone, and seek help and comfort from him alone. The heart hears this, and yet it cannot do it. Why, then, does the law command such an impossible thing? As I have said, it is to show us our inability, so we may learn to know ourselves and to see ourselves as we are, even as one sees himself in a mirror. When the conscious, smitten by God's law, 
begins to quake and finds that it does not keep God's commandments, then the law does its proper work. For the true mission of the law is only to terrify the conscience. There are two classes of men who fulfill the law or imagine they fulfill it. The first are those who, when they have heard it, begin with outward works. They desire to perform and fulfill it by works. How do they proceed? They say, God has commanded you shall have one God. Surely I will worship no other God. I will serve him and no idol and will have no heathen, idolatrous image in my house or in my church. Why would I do this? Ah, such people make a show with their glittering, fabricated service of God, like the clergy in our day, and they think they keep this law when they bend their knees and are able to sing and brag much about God. By this show, the poor laity also are deceived. They follow after the priests and also desire to obey the law by their works. But the blind guides the blind, and both fall into a pit. This is the first class, those who imagine they will keep the law and yet do not. The other class are those who know themselves by law and study what it seeks and requires. For instance, when the law says, you shall have one God and worship and honor him alone, this heart meditates. What does that mean? Should I bend my knees? What does it mean to have one God? It surely is something else than a bodily outward reverence. Finally, this group realizes that the commandment is a very different thing than is generally supposed, that it is nothing except having trust and hope in God that he will help and assist in all anxiety and distress, in every temptation and adversity, that he will save man from sin, from death, from hell, and from the devil, and that without his help and salvation, man alone can do nothing. And this is the meaning of having one God, a heart so thoroughly humble namely a heart that has become quite terrified and shaken by this commandment, desires to have God, and in its anxiety and troubles flees to God alone. Now the hypocrites and work saints who lead a fine life before the world are not able to do this, for their confidence is based upon their own righteousness and outward piety alone. Therefore, when God attacks them with the law and causes the poor people to see that they have not kept the law, nor not even the least of it, when they are overwhelmed by anxiety and distress and an evil conscience, and when they perceive that external works will not suffice and that keeping the commandments of God is a very different thing from what they thought, then they rush ahead and seek ever more and more and other and still other works, and fancy that they will thereby quiet their consciences. But they greatly miss the right way. Hence it comes to pass that one wishes to do it by rosaries, another by fasting, this one by prayer and that one by torturing his body, 
One runs to Rome, another to Jerusalem. Here one becomes a monk, another a nun, and they seek their end in so many ways that they can scarcely be enumerated. Why do they do all this? Because they wish to save themselves, to rescue and help themselves. The consequence of this is great blasphemy against God. For they also boast mightily of their works and brag, saying, I have been in an order so long, I have prayed so many rosaries, have fasted so much, have done this and that. God will give me heaven as a reward. Oh, these actions are what is meant to have an idol. This is also what Isaiah meant when he said, they worship the work of their own hands. He was not speaking of some stone and wood, but of the external works which appear good and beautiful before men. These hypocrites are ingenious enough to give the chaff to God and keep the wheat for themselves. This then is true idolatry, as Paul wrote to the Romans. Thou hast abhorrest idols. Dost thou commit sacrilege? This is spiritual robbery. Therefore, you will find there is nothing good in any man of himself. But there is a distinction between this and the attitude of the upright, in whom the law has exercised its work. The upright, when they feel their sickness and weakness, say, God will help me. I trust in him. I, I build upon him. He is my rock and hope. But when trial, distress, and anxiety are at hand, the others lament and say, oh, where will I go? They must at last despair of God, of themselves, and of their works, even if they have many of them. These in the first group are false and unrighteous pupils of the law, who presume to fulfill it by their works, for they have an appearance and glitter outwardly, but in their hearts they have nothing but filth and uncleanness. Therefore, they also merit nothing before God, who does not regard external works that are done without any heart in them. Those in the second place are the true and real pupils who keep the law, who know and are conscious that they do evil and make nothing of themselves, surrender themselves, count all their works unclean in the eyes of God and despair of themselves and all their own works. Those who do this and have no trouble except that they must not deceive themselves with vain fruitless thoughts and defer this matter until death. For if anyone persistently postpones this until death, he will have a sad future. But we must take heed so that we will not despair, even if we still feel sinful inclinations and are not as pure as we would like to be. We will not entirely sweep all this rubbish out of our hearts because we are still flesh and blood. This much can surely be done. Outward wicked deeds can be prevented, and carnal shameful words and works can be avoided, although it is attained with difficulty. 
But in this world, it will never come to pass that you are free from lust and evil inclination. Saint Jerome undertook to root such inclinations out of his heart by prayer, by fasting, work, and torture of the body. But he found out that what he accomplished was of no avail. The desire remained. Works and words can be restrained, but lust and inclinations no one can root out of himself. In short, if you desire to attain the true righteousness that avails before God, you must despair altogether of yourself and trust in God alone. You must surrender yourself entirely to Christ and accept him so that all he has is yours and all that is yours becomes his. In this way, you begin to burn with divine love and become quite another person, completely born anew, and all that is in you is converted. Then you will have as much delight in chastity as you had pleasure before in fornication, and so forth with all lusts and inclinations. This now is the first work of God, that we learn to know ourselves, how condemned, miserable, weak, and sickly we are. It is then God's good will that a man desponds and despairs of himself when he hears, this shall you do and that shall you do. For everybody must feel and experience in himself that he does not and cannot do it. The law is neither able nor is it designed to give you this power of obeying it. But it proves what Paul said, the law worketh wrath. That is, nature rages against the law and wishes the law did not exist. Therefore, those who presume to satisfy the law by outward deeds become hypocrites. But in the others, it only worketh wrath and causes sins to increase. As Paul said in another place, the strength of sin is the law. For the law does not take sin away. It multiplies sin and causes me to feel my sin. So he said again to the Corinthians, the letter killeth. That is, the law works death in you. In other words, it reduces you to nothing, but the Spirit giveth life. For the law can be fulfilled only when you come to God through the gospel, as we will hear. Therefore, the world errs when it tries to make men righteous through laws. Only pretenders and hypocrites result from such efforts. But reverse this and say, as Paul said, the law produces sin, for the law does not help me the least, except that it teaches me to know myself. There I find nothing but sin. Then how would it take sin away? We will now see how this thought is set forth in the gospel. The text says, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, what did the disciples fear? They feared death. They were in the very midst of death. 
Where did their fear of death come from? From sin. For if they had not sinned, they would not have feared, nor could death have injured them. For the sting of death, which is the means by which it kills, is sin. But they, like us all, did not yet have a true knowledge of God. For if they had esteemed God as God, they would have been without fear and in security. As David said, Whither shall I go from your spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. Psalm 139, 7-10 And as he said in another place, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. It is easy to die if I believe in God, for then I do not fear death. But whoever does not believe in God must fear death and can never have a joyful and secure conscience. Now God drives us to this by holding the law before us, so that through the law we may come to a knowledge of ourselves, for no one can ever be saved without this knowledge. He who is well needs no physician. But if a man is sick and desires to become well, he must know that he is weak and sick. Otherwise, he cannot be helped. But if one is a fool and refuses to take the remedy that will restore him to health, he will certainly die and perish. But some priests have closed our eyes so that we were not compelled and not able to know ourselves. They failed to preach the true power of law. For where the law is not properly preached, there can be no self-knowledge. David had such knowledge when he said, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness." According unto the multitude of thy mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 51, 1-5. In this passage, it is as if David wished to say, Behold, I am formed of flesh and blood, which is of itself in sin, so that I can do nothing but sin. For although you restrain your hands, and feet or tongue, so that they do not sin, the inclination and lusts always remain because flesh and blood are present no matter where you go, whether to Rome or any other holy place. If an upright heart 
that comes to the point of knowing itself is met by the law, it will certainly not seek to help itself by works. Instead, it confesses its sin and helplessness, its infirmity and sickness, and says, Lord God, I am a sinner, a transgressor of your divine commandments. Help me, for I am lost. Now, when a man is in such fear and cries out to God, God cannot refrain from helping him. We see in this case that Christ was not absent long from the disciples tormented by fear, but was soon present, comforting them and saying, Peace be unto you, be of good courage, it is I, do not fear. The same happens now. When we come to a knowledge of ourselves through the law and are now in deep fear, God awakens us and has the gospel preached to us by which he gives us a joyful and secure conscience. That was Martin Luther, portrayed by David Mink. Now remember, this is a two-parter, so you'll want to tune in next time to hear the rest of the sermon. You can do that by downloading the Unshackled app, and all of history's greatest sermons are on the app. So make sure you go online, grab that, put it on your favorite device, and listen to all of these sermons over and over again. They're great. They're good stuff. Uh, Just a little context. Mm -hmm. This is 1522 when he delivered this sermon, which is one year after his excommunication. So he's already on the run. Yep. He's already... um, One thing he started to do right away was he started translating the New Testament into German during that time. Yes. And of course, he started working on the Old Testament as well. So he has been spending all of his time in the original language. He didn't translate it from Latin. He translated it from the Greek, from the original, into the people's language so they could access the truth and really hear it in their tongue. So that's what he's been doing while he's preparing this sermon. So a man consumed, really, in in more ways than one, because I think it was consuming to arrive at his conclusions and then to bring his conclusions out, and then all of the travail Mm -hmm. that it took before he became excommunicated. Mm -hmm. So now he's probably using every hour he can to get the work done in case. Yeah, I wonder if he knows. I mean, his time is limited. Mm -hmm. He knows he's on, it's not that he's on the run because he's hiding in that, in that chapel or in that castle. So he's not going from place to place, but this is his place. This is his place. Mm -hmm. It kind of reminds me a little bit of, oh, also this is five or so years after his, what they call the 95 theses nailed to the door event. So he's been thinking about this for years. It's not just a well, I read this one thing in, in the Psalms and it changed my mind about something. It is years of him understanding that what the church at that time had done was wrong. Yes. And him fighting it and trying to get people to see the truth of grace and faith and all that, go, that goes with it. Yes. So a, a compassion arises mm-hmm. and his own process had been to come to these realizations for his own self, realizing that his, in his own sinfulness and body and growth, it wasn't working, and then bringing that out to realize he needed to talk to the church about it, mm-hmm. and then saying, I've got to tell the people about it, because they are lost sheep. So everything he's doing at this point is to those lost sheep to try to free them from the bondage they've been placed under yeah. by the church at his time. So there is a passion about him. It becomes his all-consuming desire. But the beautiful thing about it is it's spirit-led. Because it's about, I figured out that this wasn't enough, 
And that has to be, by, as I correlate with scripture, the spirit of God teaching me this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you need that same opportunity. Yeah. One of my favorite things he's mentioned in this first half is when we find our works don't satisfy the law and we're still overwhelmed by anxiety, distress, and evil conscience, what do we do? We seek to do even more, more. good works. Yes. Picture us now, right? Right. right. That's exactly right. what we do. And it's also a very modern um, uh, religion, this idea of, well, it's because you're not doing enough or if you would do more, even in a positive way. Make sure when you wake up, you're thinking positive thoughts because what you're doing is going to uh, alleviate your anxiety and distress and your evil conscience. You know, in a way that's nice. I mean, I'd rather wake up feeling good than sad. Sure. It's um, nicer, but. I'd rather be, be nice to people. Mm-hmm. And that idea of reciprocity, well, if I'm nice to people, they'll be nice to me. Yeah, that is great. It won't heal an evil conscience or our spirit saying, yes, but there's sin inside of me. He says, he goes on to say, why did they do all this? Why do we just add to our works to uh, get rid of our anxiety and distress? It's because we wish to save ourselves. Yes. I wanted to talk for just a second about the whole idea of losing everything. I don't know how many people who are tuned in who might have lost everything in one way or another, emotionally, physically, financially, family, relationally. So many people are brought to that spot somewhere in their Christian lives because it is the only spot that truly teaches you what you have to bring to the table. And you can find that devastating, and emotionally it is, or you can find that freeing because Christ is standing right there. And when you build on that foundation, as Luther did here theologically, you have it all. Such a different stance. Such a power-filled message. This has been History's Greatest Sermons. An Unshackled production of Pacific Garden Mission, produced and directed by Timothy Gregory. To hear more Unshackled content, you can download our app. Get it for free at any of the major app stores. For more information, visit unshackled.org. Join us next time as we experience another one of history's greatest sermons.